Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Amanda Covatana. She's a six-year veteran of tiny house living situated in the drought landscape of Northern California, where she's focused on reducing her resource use, informed by her childhood growing up in pre-industrialized Thailand in the 60s and her coming of age as a lesbian in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's the author of two memoirs, Diamonds in My Pocket and The Girl's Guide to Off-Grid Living, and has several essays published in various anthologies. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And second, thank you for being on the program. Oh, yes. Thank you for having me. And so before we start, I just want to mention The Girl's Guide to Off-Grid Living is is really interesting because it is about um, so much. It's not just about off-grid living. When As I was reading it, I was thinking, uh, is this like some sort of explosion where you put chemicals together and then they you know they blow up into something much bigger or is this more like a stew where you drop in various ingredients and then the whole thing ends up tasting much better than all the individual components but it's it's, it was really interesting how you you how you mixed in all of these different subjects into this one this one fairly small book Hmm. Yes, I'm liking the uh, stew idea. Originally, I, I've already written a memoir. So how many memoirs does one need to write? So in thinking of what next I would write, I thought I would just write a pamphlet about how to make a composting toilet, because that was the most original thing that I had done of late. But with the advent of YouTube, making anything, any do-it-yourself guide is covered by YouTube much better than having to translate through words and pictures. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to write, why would a woman even want to build a composting toilet? And why would a woman want to live and design a life around a composting toilet. I mean, people who live in tiny houses, that's the last thing they want to talk about. So at the same time, one of my teachers, a spiritual teacher, wanted to have a memoir class for all of us who wanted to write memoir. And of course, once I got into the class, she was encouraging us to write a much bigger story than just a pamphlet. She had more idea of it being a hero's journey. So that led me to think, what was the source of my inspiration to that would lead me to living a lifestyle with a homemade composting toilet? And because I didn't, Unlike other tiny house dwellers who are looking for a economical way to own a house, I didn't really need to seek such a, uh, a situation. I had many options open to me, and I was raised in a family that was quite well off in Thailand, in Bangkok, in the 60s. And 
I had every opportunity that could be made available to me in schooling, in connections with various businesses in Thailand, hotel owners, uh, professional journalism, anything that I could pick. It was, but I wasn't really inspired by the choices. And also my parents who, one, one is Thai, that's a family that I grew up with. And my mother is English and she didn't really want to spend the rest of her life in Thailand. She was looking to come to a more Western society and she picked California. My father had a job that brought him to California. And once she saw how beautiful it was here and how many options there was as far as social opportunity and geography, she embarked, persuaded my family, my father, me and her, that we should immigrate to California. So that was basically what brought me to creating an American life. So the coming of age as a lesbian in San Francisco was key to shaping how I would operate. And that was already, that was sort of the beginning of pushing me off grid in the met metaphorical sense, in that I wasn't going to be able to live a mainstream life that was the usual path of going to school, finding someone I would marry, having started family, that kind of thing. It was very much the life of an outlaw in the 70s and 80s and even 90s for gay people. So that opened up um, more, sort. It, it was like opened up the, the metaphor you gave of a big explosion appeals to me in, in that being an outlaw has a lot of opportunities that whatever your imagination could offer. And at the same time, I was being reduced in my mainstream opportunities because I just didn't want to stay in the closet. So had I chosen a profession that was more in line with my intellect, I might have become a political scientist, a writer, uh, a lawyer, a teacher. And, and being a teacher was definitely out, out of the question for a gay person at the time. So I ended up becoming an artist because that's where all the gay people hung out. So I, I did graphic design and that, that sustained me for a while and that allowed me to work with my hands. So that gave me a lot of uh, structure, hand skills, learning fine, fine hand skills, because at the time, this was also before desktop publishing. So 
learning how to use hand tools was very much a part of the scene. And, and so all of these uh, roads in my life were leading me towards creative workarounds of doing things in a non-mainstream way. So that, that I would say was the, the sort of arc of my story. And in the process of writing the book, I realized I had more opportunities to present in memoir form because I'd seen so much history in the Bay Area of the gay lesbian movement. I pretty much came on the scene just before Harvey Milk was killed. And then the movement expanded from there and I could I had uh, was not very far from San Francisco, just a half hour drive. So I could participate in the social milieu that was happening in the gay community and begin some in the small community that was in near Stanford University and locally, the few bars that were here. So that, that was history. As I realized I was writing, I was saying, wow, I have witnessed so much of this gay movement, even though I don't really consider myself part of the gay community as much. So I thought that was worth preserving. So that went into the memoir, just enough to have history. And the other opportunity I saw in writing this memoir was it, it's a lesbian memoir and there aren't that many lesbian memoirs worth reading. <laughs> the, um, they tend to be political. They, they tend to be all about how I participated and changed the direction of the gay movement in my area. And I, I wasn't that much of a participant. I was more of a witness and social participant. So the lesbian memoir aspect became a piece, an opportunity of this book. And then the other opportunity was just writing as a woman. Why would a woman learn these skills, carpentry and whatnot, that would lead me to want to outfit my own tiny house? And what was it about being a woman, too? Because as time has gone on, women tend to focus less on what it means or what shapes a woman. We've tried to reduce the uh, differences between men and women. And in this area ever, where we're asking, we're not even allowed to ask, what is a woman? I, th I thought, well, aha, this is an opportunity that needs to be fleshed out in case we forgot 
<laughs> so that those elements all ended up in my stew. And it is, it did at times seem a bit of a stretch to have it all together. But I, I continued because it, it, it was a rich vein and it seemed to help uh, me find all of the different influences in my life that brought me to this desire to live in such a small footprint of a house. So when I completed the book, it did feel like it all would hang together. And because I was writing the book for myself as my own exploration, it was not designed around, I did not have an audience in mind. I knew that people loved the tiny house idea and there was an audience there. And I've read the memoirs and they, they always seem to shortchange on the why. The why did these people come to live in a tiny house and did they like it and why did they stick with it? So I, I thought, yes, people who want to read about sustainable living and tiny house living in particular would be interested. And I would just educate them along. If they came for that, then they would also get the rest of the scene, the, the, the life of a woman whose life does not center men, because that's really what a lesbian life is, and the, the life of an immigrant who is not the rags to riches cliche of an immigrant, but someone who had opportunities and knowledge from the home country to bring in. And, and how you, all of the factors, how do you navigate a life that has all these factors? So that, that's what I thought would make the book interesting. And, and so far, I, people have really loved the memoir part of it even if they weren't that interested in the frugality and sustainable living part of it, they, they really responded to the memoir part. A few people loved the book from beginning to end. And they, they are obviously my ideal reader. So that's what I'm sending it out to. So I have, I have a few directions. At some point, I want to go. Um, I've always been fascinated by decay. So at one point, I want to. I do want to talk some a little bit specifics about the composting toilet, just uh -huh. because I think that's so fascinating. So at some point there, <coughs> excuse me. Another part is um, my one of my two oldest friends is a Korean American who came to from korea when she was a little girl hmm. and so if you would like to talk about that i don't know if culture shock is the right word or but the but the 
the you know that transition when you moved over that's another thing but what i what what i really want to get at and and you can ignore any of these you want you can go whatever direction you want but another thing is um my uh my carpentry skills stink and i sometimes wonder if i mean my my mom and i had a great relationship and she loved me very much but sometimes i wonder if she wouldn't have preferred, I would have been a little bit less of a writer and a little bit more of somebody who could fix her gutters. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, that is sort of the standard, the stereotypical, uh, you know, sex role of, you know, the guy is going to be the one who can fix a motorcycle or can fix a house or can build a composting toilet. I mean, my composting toilet would probably consist of, um, you know, a plank with a hole in it that you poop and then it goes on the ground. It's okay. And so, so I'm, I'm not very good at that sort of thing. And you are clearly, and then you're also a woman. And I know that's no surprise, but these days things have gotten crazy with, well, if a woman likes construction, she must not be a woman. Mm-mm. Right. So a- anything, just stop. Please stop me from rambling and take any of those any direction <laughs> you want. Uh, it, it is funny, the relationship you mentioned between your mother and you, how you you ought to have been able to fix her gutters. My my mother was a little bit in the reverse. She She saw me on a ladder with my a carpentry pouch doing some electrical work in her garage and she watching me says I never imagined that you would want to be a plumber <laughs> so there, there are these stereotypes but part of the uh, journey to that that I was interested in was the reskilling part because that's what the the environmental movement that I was following peak oil and sustainable living we had plenty of time to d- discuss well what would solve the problem of climate change what would solve the problem and talked a lot about electric cars and solar panels and all of that but I I didn't have the money really I I ended up making a living as a professional organizer because I'm a very hands-on person and I like to put things in order and I also have a designer uh, temperament I I can visualize how things should be put together so I can solve problems physically through through visualization and that helps people who can't manage to stay organized. I can set up closet systems and paper flow systems, what have you. So I wanted to stay in the hands-on skills. I, you know, the only way you can really afford the green stuff like solar panels and electric cars is if you have a corporate job and you make enough money to buy this stuff. But that leaves out a whole 
part of the population, the working class, the poor, most of the world who are peasant farming, subsistence farming. I, why, what is the message that I wanted to impart was, was how you can really do things yourself on a very small scale. You know, I have no illusion that I'm changing the world one composting toilet at a time. I, I really was looking at the picture of how do I reduce my needs for all of these grid-tied utilities and products. So for me, reducing the, the needs for all of these products was part of my journey and my message. For instance, in my work as a professional organizer, I'd help people, women mostly, clear out the bathroom. And there would be 10 boxes of product, body product, that didn't work anymore, or you know, you paid a lot of money for, so you feel you should hang on to in case you use it again. And it's just clutter. So that's where my journey really began in shampoo <laughs> and how, 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 you know, that's not a very uh, big deal to most people. If you say, you know, what are you doing to live more sustainably? And you say, oh, well, I changed my shampoo. It doesn't, it's not very impressive, but over the whole picture of how do you do that? How do you no longer go to the store to buy all these things in plastic bottles is quite a big piece of it. So that, that too is part of the book, is that you can start small, just one item at a time. I, I started to learn how to use solar panels by, I bought one solar panel and I hooked up a fan to it and, and I hung it outside my, bedroom window when I was still living in a conventional house with my partner and fed little wires through a tiny hole in the screen so that I could hook up my fan. And this pleased me because it was, it taught me how to use a solar panel and what I could use it for. And it got me just that one little step off the grid, which, so, so I was basically engaging in a long, geeky experiment that, that was slowly, incrementally making little sustainable steps and my, the whole, uh, how to live sustainably, how to live with a, a smaller footprint, how to buy less commercial product is, is all, all a part of what I consider to be off-grid living. Well, and one of the things I love about what you just said is the the step-by-step -step nature of it. 
And one of the reasons I've written so many books, I, I actually don't write books. I write a page and another page and another page mm-hmm. and eventually have a book. And I got that advice from my mother through her grandmother, who used to say constantly to her, um, yard by yard, life's hard, inch by inch, life's a cinch. I know it's a cliche, mm-hmm. but, you know, you just if 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 I were faced with the possibility, OK, so now I'm going to personally do something with solar panels, I would just immediately quit because it's too big of a problem. But mm. if you if you said, look, just take one solar panel and hook up this wire here, and this wire here, and then attach the other end to a fan. I could probably do that. Mm. And maybe. Yeah. And the the point is that I think that there there is some real brilliance in not taking on a problem uh in one excuse the terrible metaphor, but not taking on a problem in one bite, but instead taking lots of little bites. Mm. Yeah. It's also a, a significant principle in in my profession, being a professional organizer, people are extremely overwhelmed by the task at hand because it seems so big and you don't know where to start. This is a, a classic scenario with my clients. So for for me, it was a practice with my clients to size up the situation and figure out where to start and what would and more importantly what would help the client become inspired to do more what would give them energy to continue so it it would vary you know I, a, a lot of organizers would approach a client saying okay we'll do this we'll go through all your files and we'll make sure everything has a place and has been blah, blah, blah. And they'll go on like that. And the client will go, well, after the session, well, that was great, but I'm not sure if that solved my problem. So my approach would be more to go in and say, what is the clog? Like a toilet clog, if we're going to go into continue with the toilet metaphor. What is the clog that is preventing the energy flow? So if, and they'll tell me, they'll say, oh, I can't stand that this hall closet is so chaotic. I just can't get anything out of it. Or they'll say, they'll call me up and say, I couldn't find stamps to mail this letter and I just need to be organized. So if I start there, then it helps to generate a flow, as it were. To So in my journey with the sustainable living, I would just focus on this one piece, read all about it, look at YouTube's shop, <laughs> you know, see, see what are my options and venture out at, at the most approachable piece of it. 
so so that's in a sense i mean i did write the book like that too i wrote uh i went to where it hurt most and just parts of my life that i had just buried like i am never going to mention this again <laughs> i mean for a writer is like well there must be some story in there and i had this lovely writing group that i i could share stories with and get a response to see is this interesting it is who was i then so the stories began to build i i chose the piece that hurt most and then i continued to write like the next logical step so and and i would find out that in that story it wasn't really my fault that it was such a bad situation i was just fending for myself it wasn't that i was guilty of of something it was more like society had put me in this position and i was just trying to navigate my way out of it and and that was <laughs> a key piece of putting this memoir together in a way that helped me and i i think it was alice walker who says if it doesn't save your own life first it won't save anyone else's so it in in revealing the specifics of my life and i i really uh exposed a lot of secrets that i wasn't prepared ever to write down but of course as a writer who's cannibalizing my own material it was just too good to pass up so it it feels like that notion of going after the thing that uh the, the clog or the 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 crisis the thing that hurts the most first off it strikes me as pretty much how the the medical model works when it is working well it's like mm. you go in with with and and you take your your first and worst symptom first and then that can often provide uh hints as to what else is going on in your body and but but mm. even perhaps more importantly it strikes me as a wonderful metaphor for how to get through life in general that if um you know if the if the biggest clog in your life or the biggest problem in your life is i mean it doesn't matter what we choose it's a, you know it could be that that there's a series of catastrophic relationships it's like well mm. maybe we should work on that first and then you know but if or if the problem is that you're um consistently um losing money at the roulette table you know i don't know i'm just choosing random examples you know maybe start there and see what that says see and not only address the problem but also what are the underlying uh what are the underlying problems that lead to that symptom i mean so it seems like not only are you telling a really interesting story here but also this is if people want to take it up, the whole thing is a metaphor for how to, uh, I mean, how to, how to live a reasonable life. 
Yes, how to live to your values. Yeah, that's much better put. Ah, uh, yes. And yes, yeah, so so you know there are some things we can't do like the the typical goal for an environmentalist is to reduce your carbon footprint. But as soon as you get on an airplane, you've blown that out of the water. And as an immigrant whose heart is in my homeland in Thailand, I cannot visualize a life where I don't go to Thailand to sustain that part of me. So I, I can't uh, think of myself as reducing my carbon footprint. But there's a lot of other things to explore. How to reduce my water footprint. This is California, so that's a really important piece of the puzzle that very little attention is being paid to. So that that gave me more motivation to do that, to, to see, well, what are the water wasting things that are built into a house? When I go to a house to do the dishes or prepare a meal, just the fact that water is expected to be hot is a huge waste of water. <laughs> you know, we, we try to bucket it out it, while we're waiting for the shower to get hot and all. But my house just doesn't have hot water. You never wait for hot water un unless the pipe happens to be in, in the sun on a hot day. Then the water comes in very warm. So it the tiny house goal ha has, has shown me ways of living that I would never learn in a conventional house. And that's how I... Yeah, tiny house design. I got a very small house, much smaller than most houses, tiny houses these days. It has an 85 square foot footprint. And wow. With a loft. So total is 130 square feet. It's like living aboard a boat. And and that there was a culture of liveaboard boats in the Bay Area that I was familiar with. So it felt like, oh, I'm I'm at on an ocean voyage. And and that made it feel good too. And at the same time I was learning how to live. I purposely did not put in a hot water system and many other things too so that I could learn how to live without it. And as it turns out, the, you can live perfectly well without on-demand hot water that takes three minutes to get to you. So so that's one, uh, I forget where we were going. Oh yes, how, how to live your own uh, values. And that was one of my values. That, that I brought from home, from Thailand, because we didn't have hot water when I was growing up. And yes, it's the tropics, so you don't really need it, but I did have 
my bath water delivered to me in a kettle by by my nanny. So it wasn't like we couldn't have hot water, but we had to be sparing about it. And I think that's what's missing in in our culture is we approach our lifestyle as if we should have all these amenities, but we don't have any kind of cultural uh, safeguards to say, to uh, remind us to reduce our needs for all these things. The concept that enough is, is good. I think the Japanese have this, this idea. Well, I think about this in terms of what Weimar Catton Jr. talked about with ghost slaves, that we have um, all this prehistoric energy we use, and it makes mm. us, um, you know, each each person in the United States has the equivalent of like 400 humans working for them full time to heat their water and carry it, which that's what it would take if humans were doing this instead of, you know, coal or oil or whatever, or hydro or whatever it is you're using that's mm. heating heating your water and bringing it to you, that we have all these, you know, and, and think about this with all the foods you eat, you know, that it actually was brought up, you know, the broccoli was brought up from Mexico and, you know, that imagine the energy it would take if somebody were actually carrying it. And I've, I've thought about this when I've gardened that, um, how much more sparing I would be with the water if I had to actually carry it as opposed to just turning on a hose and out it flows. Right, right. And this always makes me think of a Doobie Brothers album. Um, what were once vices are now habits was the name of the album. Uh-huh. And I think about that with all of this stuff like like um, electricity. You know, 150 years ago, um, that's one of my dogs is is <laughs> telling the other dog not to get up on the couch. Um, anyway, um, you know, 150 years ago, nobody had it, and and hot water would have been a luxury. And and right. now we don't even. It's I can't imagine living without it. You know, it's it, it's just for everything. Mm. I mean, this is it's that for the internet. You know, you and I grew up before the internet existed, and mm-hmm. nowadays, you know, people would riot if their wi-fi went down right yes it, it, it it's a addictive culture and one that makes us more helpless well I, that's that's okay i want to let's remember the helpless thing because i want to come back to that in a moment and but i i do want to go back to you being a uh a a young girl from asia coming over and i'm thinking of a line by Linda Hogan, who's an American Indian writer, and she said that being of both cultures made her, she felt somewhat like an amphibian because mm. she had to be home both in the water and in the air. I mean, yeah. both in the water and on the land. Mm-hmm. And um, is does that work for you, or is your perspective when you when you came over? I mean, just talk about your experience of of coming to the United States. And and did it feel like you now immerse yourself in b- both cultures? How does all that work? 
Yes, uh, I I had the advantage of having gone to British schools in Thailand, so my English was very good when I arrived, and I didn't really understand the culture shock that I was feeling because I, I was doing fine in school, but it was it there was a huge missing piece of me that I had to learn. Was gone, and then had to, when I went back to Thailand. It wasn't very often that I could go back to Thailand in in my youth, because it was such a long journey and all. But now I go quite a lot, and I realize how much I'm missing from that culture that can that is not found here. So that there is a lot of that going on in in my uh, life of trying to maintain an American persona. You really have to have a a strong character to survive an American society because people are constantly asking you what do you think, uh, what do you think will happen. They want your opinion. They want you to stand by, defend your opinion. It's it's like a free for all. And I I didn't learn that here because I'm from a collective culture where we know our place. We are placed in society, so we really don't have to defend it. We the only thing we need to make a decision about is what to have for dinner. And where, so that's how it worked. So tell the story, if you don't mind, of the swimming pool. Do you know what I'm talking about? Hmm. The the where you the the woman accused you of being a boy. Ah yes. And because I thought I thought your response was, I mean that that seems very revealing of the different cultures. Yes, yes, because. As a child, this this was in England. I was visiting my grandparents, and we were at the public pool. And I had very short hair, pixie haircut that my mother favored. So I, I looked like a boy, and I was in the changing room. And a mother said, "You're in the wrong room. The boys' changing room is across the hall." But because I was Thai. I was trained not to contradict an adult, it, because it would cause her to lose face, as it were. So I just said nothing. And then when I came back, and I, I was, she'd seen me, I think, in a towel or something. And when I came back, I was all dressed in a, a, a little dress. So she saw that I was a girl after all. And she says, well, why didn't you tell me you were a girl? But that that's, uh, wasn't in my culture to defend who I was, because in, in the first, I didn't have a boy's haircut in the Thai sense. They have much more severe uh, short hair, and they didn't have beetles hair like kids were doing at that time. So it wouldn't have been necessary to 
defend myself. And there would have been people around me with me because you didn't go anywhere without friends or another person. And they, they would have spoken up for me too, or just laughed and it would have all been clear. But this idea that an adult was asking me to identify myself kind of petrified me. So that, that was what I had to learn was how to raise my, my voice, as it were, uh, not louder, but more articulate, with more words. Was that the, what you were? No, 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 no that was exactly it. That's great. Uh-huh. Um, so we're, we're down to about five minutes left. And um, in a minute, I want to a- ask you to tell people how they can find out more about your work. But before then, um, there's, you know, we, we started with a compost toilet. The book started with a compost toilet. Mm. So um, what, is your, uh, what is your insight on compost toilets that, that you, can, you can share with, uh, with people? Um, <clears throat> and I'm sorry, this is a terrible line, but I, I have to do it. You know, at one point you talked about how sometimes it starts people with people start with shampoo and uh, I'm going to say you actually started with real poo. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry. No. Um, anyway, anyway, so how 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 well, do compost toilets work and what does that have to do with the book? Besides being the seed that created the impetus to write the book, the the compost toilet is the most off-grid thing you can do because to the flush toilet nobody wants to talk about it or think about it and anytime I ask people would you give up a flush toilet they're most likely to say no (laughs) I don't want to deal with all that shit you know and so my Going into it, I just thought it would be one piece of the tiny house. But it turns out to be the whole environment because from the composting toilet, you get all these materials, the nitrogen from the urine, the soil, composting material to build up soil available for free and you're producing it so you become a producer instead of a consumer and this link was really important to my project it kept me engaged like how I thought after six years really tired of the slop bucket as it were but perfecting my process in in processing poop has really become the innovation that I'm pursuing I, I mean I was greatly influenced by Silicon Valley so my father being an engineer and all so I was really like this is my of the innovation scene, I can really pursue this and perfect it. And it's handmade. There's nothing really, you just buy a few uh, 
funnels and tubing and an oil change pan and a box with a toilet seat and you got it. So what you can do with that to improve soil, grow crops, improve the land, restore the soil. So I basically think of myself as the cow that is doing the restorative soil restoration on this little piece of land I live on. I think that's so important. I think that's absolutely crucial to our relationship to um, it's, it's a beginning of reciprocity, which, you know, this culture doesn't have, we don't give back Mm -hmm. to the land what it needs. And I I think that that's really, really, uh, really important. Yes. And and that turned out to be really the core of, of me living according to my saving water, restoring the soil, keeping a small footprint. And even though the book doesn't really go into, I mean, that's just a tiny fraction of the book. I could really write a whole book about just the composting toilet after all. But I, I had I had this journey I had to make before I could really build the confidence to be the author of such a book. Well, when you when you do, I would like to have you back on because okay. I think that would be that would be a great one to talk about. So in the meantime, how do people buy your book and how do they find out more about your work in general? I the book is for sale on Amazon. It is published on the Kindle platform, so it's self-published. You can find it under my name, Amanda Covitana, or the name of the book, The Girl's Guide to off-grid living. And spell your name, please. Amanda, A-M-A-N-D-A, Covatana, K-O-V, as in Victor, A-T-T-A-N-A. And is there anything else you want to say about the book before we go? I don't think so. Okay. Go ahead. It, it's it's been the most satisfying uh, project writing project I've done. So I really feel like just putting it out there has done all that I needed to do. And because it was so rewarding to me, I just hope that it finds its audience. Well, I think it's a really good book. Thank you. And um, thank you for being on the program. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Amanda Kovatana. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>